this far into 1 Samuel, and um, I trust that this has been a, um, not only a, a, a helpful journey, um, but just kind of a, a journey that has really helped you see um, how God speaks, in particular through Old Testament narrative. So let's stand together. We'll read um, the whole chapter, and um, beginning at verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of your Lord of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looked down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, 
For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks. And a third of the shekel was for sharpening and a third of the shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Lord, we ask that you would allow this reading of your word, Lord, to settle into our hearts, and Lord, to give us a framework to truly understand what it is that you desire for us this morning. May I, as your messenger, simply be the mouthpiece for your text. May our hearts be tender and receptive to your truth. And Lord, would you have your way with us? May we uh, truly um, partner together as we, as we seek to, to glean, Lord, uh, your purposes for us this morning. We ask in your precious holy name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Psalm 14 and verse one says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this statement, which is repeated in Psalm 53 verse one, is a stunning statement. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it's a statement that should cause everyone who hears it to pay very close attention. But it would do us well to notice what it is saying and what it is not saying. It is not saying the fool says in his mind, there is no God. It is saying the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The distinction seems rather small, but an important one nonetheless. In other words, the fool isn't just making an intellectual argument in his mind that flows from things like logic and intellectualism or sophistication, the kinds of arguments that may come from, for example, an atheist that is truly impressive in his arguments, even demonstrates great intelligence and quite frankly, could be intimidating. What this verse is pointing to is something far more holistic, far deeper than mere intellect and understanding. It is addressing the denial of God in the inner workings of our hearts, our very being. And this is, this is how it unfolds. It unfolds in how I think. It unfolds in the the basis of my values. It comes out in the choices that I make. It comes in the, the desires that I choose to pursue. It describes ultimately the very essence of my character. So it's not just how I think. It's talking about where does God reside in my heart. And see, the fool says in his heart, There is no God. So it's possible to affirm in your mind there is a God, but to deny in your heart that God actually exists. And the evidence of your awareness that there is a God will be seen by your thoughts and your actions 
and your choices and behaviors and desires. Because if God does exist, then we must ask ourselves the question, who is he? If God does exist, then we have to ask ourselves the question, how can I know him? And if he does exist, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does he expect or require from me? And when I start to answer those questions, the answers are not merely intellectual, but they're practical, and they flow out of my heart, my being, my character, my choices. That is why someone who is a murderer, or a liar, or a lifelong criminal, or a practicing homosexual can say, I believe in God, but still live a life that is in opposition to what God has revealed about himself and desires for them to do. And sadly, there are many people that will say, I believe in God. But their lives betray that affirmation. And friends, that is not just out there. That is a reality that is very true in the context of the church. Now in our text today, we're going to see the foolishness of Saul, Israel's king, revealed. See, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, okay, I might believe that God is there, but I'm not practically going to believe him by my choices and by my actions. And as we come to this passage today, we're going to see the evidence of Saul's foolishness by virtue of his choices and his actions. Some of them are good, but some are going to reveal what is really there in his character. And I want you to home in on verse 13, if you would, please. It says there, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done what? Foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which you which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Okay? So we have these, these, these realities. The fool has said in his heart there is no God, and then we see here's Saul then who is acting foolishly as if God doesn't even exist. Now, let's think about the setting. Look at verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. One of the concerns we must put to rest this morning, because some of you are scratching your heads already, is what is this apparent textual um, difficulty that we find in verse 1? How many of your Bibles actually say, um, what does mine say here? And Saul, Saul was dot, 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 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. Anyone have that? Yeah. Our reader this morning said, Pastor Rod, how do I say dot, dot, dot? It's just, you know, dot, dot, dot. Well, actually, um, I, I want to just help us through that, because what happens here in translation, or actually in the Bible, is, is, is the best effort to reflect the, the the, the accurate text that we have. And so in the footnote, there are a number of options. But the ESV Bible is what I just read, but I want to read at least the, the translation from the Hebrew text. It reads this way. Saul was a son of a year when he reigned, and two years he reigned over Israel. Now, what does that mean? 
What is that verse actually saying? I think if you take the Hebrew in a more literal way, we can really come to a, an appropriate conclusion. Okay, first of all, Saul was a son of a year. Now this is an expression that was typically given to a king that was um, being identified by that king's age. For example, if there is going to be, if there is a king who is born and that king is three years old, he would be a son of a king three years. That's how that expression is used. Now the difference here is this. Saul was not born into his kingship, right? A lot of times people are born into that position. This is the first time Israel's had a human king. And he was anointed as king, chapter 10 and verse one, and it has been a year since that anointing, okay? So there's been one year from that point when he was identified to be Israel's king. And then it says Saul reigned over Israel two years. So from the time of his crowning um, to his being rejected, which we'll find in chapter 15, verse 28, is about a two-year span. So these two years then are, are talking about what is gonna happen now from chapter 13 through the end of chapter 15. Now it's just needed for us to kind of set the stage here and deal with the text because I don't want you walking away. After we announced this morning, you know, we believe that the Bible is what? Inerrant, all right? There are always answers that are helpful and right if we just take our time to think through these things. Now, if you wanna go and do some commentary study yourself, I encourage you to do that. We wanna be Bereans, we wanna study God's word uh, faithfully, but this is how I understand this text to truly unfold, okay? So having said that, here's ultimately what we wanna focus on this morning, and that's this. The relationship of Saul's foolishness, sorry, the re revelation of Saul's foolishness, the foolishness in Saul's heart is made known to us through three unfolding scenes. Let me give you those three scenes. This is what our main headings are gonna be. Just simply the context of Saul's foolishness. We're just gonna look at the, the setting, the, 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 the arena, what's happening um, that, that, uh, that, that gives the kind of, might we say, the, the, the backdrop or the place setting for his foolishness. Secondly, the heart of Saul's foolishness. What actually was his foolishness? And then the fruit from Saul's foolishness. There's fruit that is born out of that foolishness. And, and as we go through all this, we do wanna see ourselves, we wanna learn some principles for ourselves, but we also wanna see uh, ultimately the picture of um, the ultimate king and uh, the kind of king that he is. So join with me now as we think through now this context for Saul's foolishness. If you recall in the previous chapter, Samuel gives Israel his final speech as their leader and as their deliverer. And he offers them two choices. He challenges them and he says to the people, listen, you can either follow the Lord by fearing him and serving him and obeying his voice and not rebelling against the commandment of the Lord, or you can not follow the Lord and not obey the voice of the word of the Lord and truly rebel against the commandment of the Lord. So the choice is simple, live faithfully under the word of the Lord or suffer justly under the hand of the Lord. That was kind of where things were left last time, right? 
And Samuel gets up and he gives this speech and he's saying, listen, this is, this is, where, the, this is where you have to land the plane. This is what you have to choose. So there's some of the backdrop. There's some of the setting for, the, for, for Saul now to consider. Now, as we continue into this passage, we also have to recognize that there are two instructions that were given to Saul at his anointing. And look back, if you would, please, at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. Actually, I think it's on the front of your handout. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. And I want you to notice the two instructions that he was given. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. And that expression, do what your hand finds to do, is a, an expression that means, now, go and do what you're supposed to do. And it's a military expression, which means there are Philistines in Gibeah that need to be taken care of. And so this was a command from Samuel, by God, through Samuel, to Saul, to go to the, this, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this place where there's this encampment and to deal with the Philistines that are there. All right? Then he says in verse 8, go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings, to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you should do. So we already looked at the first instruction. The second instruction is when you've done that, go down to Gilgal, wait for me, and then I'll show you what to do. Now, the sad reality is when we look in the story there, instead of doing what he was supposed to do, what does Saul do? He just goes home. There's this kind of like, you just, <laughs> all these things have happened to you, Saul. All these signs have taken place. All this proof that this is part of God's plan and you are going to be this king. Now go do it. And we find him just going off and going home. So the Philistines are still garrisoned at Gibeah. And the commandment from God through Samuel still remains. Now notice how our passage now opens up. The story continues, and we see that Saul has grown from a loose band of following warriors gathered, that were gathered in particular to ambush Nahash and his Amorite army in Dustin chapter 9, to the formation of a structured army, 3,000 strong. Notice verses 2, um, or verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So now there's, there's some specific structure, strategy, placement of this, this army. Now, one of the things that often happens when we're, when we're reading Old Testament narrative is that we read from the New Testament back into the Old Testament. And typically, when you think about, all right, what is the central city in Israel? What, what's your answer going to be? Jerusalem. But see, Jerusalem has not yet become the central city. Okay? So we kind of get our kind of Old Testament thinking hats on. The central city for Israel right now is the city of Gibeah, Saul's hometown. And so the, the placing of this, these two different groups in that area um, is very strategic for the nation at that particular point in time. Okay, so this is a good move on Saul's part. An army is formed, strategically placed. Now notice uh, the second thing. There's a command that is obeyed. A command is obeyed. And it just seems from out of nowhere, 
we see something positive coming from Saul, or at least from his son, Jonathan. So we pick it up at verse three. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Remember, the Philistines always what? They always hear, right? They always hear what's going on. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard it, uh, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also <coughs> that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now what is important for our understanding and interpreting this chapter is that what we see here is that Saul is finally getting around to obeying Samuel's instructions that were given to him at the time of his anointing. Now, we might be very, very quick to say, well, Saul really isn't doing this. Jonathan's doing this, and you would be right. But Jonathan is under whose authority? It's under Saul's authority. And so we gotta be careful that we're not reading too much into the text or out of the text here, but recognize that they were garrisoned in certain places, and Jonathan went and dealt with what needed to be dealt with, but it says Saul blew the trumpet. Now some would say that, well, see, Saul was just taking the credit for himself. Well, you could say that, but you could also say that Saul was making it known that game is on, all right? We are now seeking to be obedient with what God had called us to do, okay? And the trumpet here means get yourself ready for battle. Now, it's important for us to see here and to consider for ourselves this. And you're gonna see a number of statements up here and I'm gonna work through them. They're all very similar. But here's the first one. It is never wrong for believers to begin practicing what God has commanded them. Had God commanded Saul to take care of the Philistines at Gibeah? The answer is yes. Had he up to this point? No. There was still a commandment that needed to be obeyed. And there had been time, over a year had taken place. And so we, we recognize here that it's never too late. It's never wrong for believers to begin practicing what God has commanded them. Now maybe your life, in your life, you have struggled with God's commandment to open your mouth and to share the gospel of, of good news with your friends or with your acquaintances. You're, you're just the kind of person that's too timid, you're too afraid, and you know that God's word commands you to do it, but you've been too afraid to take that command seriously. And, and, and the answer to that then is this, it's never too late to begin to be obedient to God's word. If you're a husband who's been passive for your whole marriage rather than taking on your biblical responsibility to be the head of the home, all is not lost. You can begin today to be obedient, you see. It's never too late to be obedient. If you're a young person and you've been living in rebellion to God or to your parents for years, knowing fully uh, in your heart and, and, and that, your, that, that your behavior was rebellion and is rebellion, it is not too late to start being obedient now. It's not too late to begin to do what God has called you as a son or a daughter to do in honoring your parents or living for the Lord. It's never too late to begin to be obedient to God's word. Or if you've 
avoided God's instructions to be faithful in your giving to the church. And we could go on and on just listing different things. It is never too late to be obedient. Or to put it this last way, late obedience is always better than ongoing disobedience. Now, the same is true for the church. We talked a little bit about it as individuals, but the same is true for the church. If we have been guilty of refusing to speak about issues or topics that might be controversial, such as abortion or homosexuality or discernment or the atonement, or if we've been guilty of presenting a soft gospel that doesn't deal with God's wrath as well as his grace, it's not too late for us to start being obedient. See, every church across this country and around the world here can look square into the word of God and say, you know what, we have been unfaithful too long and we see the need to get back to a robust gospel. We see the need to speak truth boldly in our context. It is a secular context, it is an ungodly context, but we have this, this opportunity to do that and to be obedient to God. It's never too late to start being obedient. Now sometimes when we've sought to ignore God's word, fearing what it says, we're not fully trusting that it is best, we can develop an attitude of, you know, I've been disobedient too long. So any steps toward being obedient now would be somewhat hypocritical. And that actually might be an argument that people around you that know you as a Christian or know us as a church would say, this is what you say, but this is how you behave. And that might hinder you from being obedient. But God says, no, 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 no. Confess your sin, repent, and be obedient now. It's never too late to start being obedient. Delayed obedience is still better than outright disobedience. Now, we, we just need to remember that, friends. How many times, uh, even, you know, it was mentioned here by our worship leader this morning. You know, this, you know I, I, I want to recognize God as king, but there are times that I haven't done that. We could all agree with him because we do struggle by saying, God, this is what you say, but I don't know that I want to do it. And finally, we have to go, oh, you know, Lord, forgive me for my, my lack of trusting you, and I'm going to be obedient now. See, we, we have to process our way through that because it's never too late. Now, so we focus there on what I've called here a command obeyed. And I really believe that Saul, through Jonathan, is ultimately seeking to obey the commands of God, finally. And we're gonna see that now because it says an em enemy is mustered, right? Don't you love that word, mustard? You know, mustard, right? You don't use that in most of your life, right? Because it actually is a military term. It means to raise up an army, okay? Um, and, and the reality is, as we read this, you will notice how, how powerful this is and how daunting this is. Verse five, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in a multitude versus 3,000. I think the people who are mustered right now are the Israelites, right? I mean, here come the Philistines. There's just a huge horde, an army, and here are these few Israelites. The context, friends, is very, 
very daunting. And so it's not surprised then that we have a people who are afraid. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, that's an understatement, right? <laughs> For the people were hard pressed. Some great detectives in Israel were rising up at that point and coming to the conclusion we're in trouble. And they were in trouble. That was an obvious reality. So they said, run and hide, and that's what happened. The people hid themselves in caves and holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. So I mean, they're, just, they're just getting out of town as far as, they, as, as far as they could get away and hiding in places so they couldn't be caught. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now, listen, that's, that's really an important statement there. The people are running away. But Saul's not running away. Now, friends, it's, it's very easy for us to have kind of ultimate attitudes about the characters that are in Scripture. Ultimately, we'll see Saul's heart as a fool unfolding for us. But let's at least give him credit to say he is trying to be obedient here. He is trying to be that king. Now, this picture then should cause us to stop and think, because when you and I, having been disobedient, choose to be obedient, guess what happens? Trouble is likely right around the corner. It's likely on its way, but God commands your obedience regardless of the implications. If you or I speak against immorality, or homosexuality, or abortion, or liberal ideas that run contrary to God's word, or make exclusive Christian claims that there is only one way to the Father, and we could go on that list, that it is ultimately through Christ that, that we are saved, you and I might just stir up a nest of bees that will find us and start stinging us. But remember, the bees are stinging and they're stirring because of your late or your final disobedience. On one hand, God desires and requires immediate obedience, right? When you're raising your children, what do you expect? I'm giving you instruction, I expect you to be obedient, so we understand that. But if we fail him, or are afraid to be obedient to him, he still wants our obedience, even if it is late obedience. So when our obedience is somehow delayed or late, it runs the risk of facing greater consequences. And that's what we have here with Saul. Saul could have dealt with that garrison of the Philistines right at the beginning when he was told to. But now, it's later. And they are re reacting, they are responding, and his army is disappearing. So friends, the context, the setting here is pretty daunting. And so we gotta get the picture of what's going on, okay? So let's move now into this next section, the heart of Saul's foolishness. If you remember Samuel's instructions in chapter 10, verses seven and eight, we will recall that Saul, after he attacked the Philistines, was to go to Gilgal and wait there seven days for Samuel's arrival. And then Samuel will tell Saul what to do. So what does Saul do? That's the question for us right now. Verse eight, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Saul did exactly what he was supposed to do. 
He went down to Gilgal just as he was told that year before. He had decided that he was going to obey the voice of the Lord now, but the circumstances all around him were turning difficult. Much of his army had fled, and the people uh, were running to various places, the caves and the cisterns and, and the cliffs. You can almost sense Saul's resolve to be faithful to the words spoken by Samuel in his final speech, verse 24 of chapter 12, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Saul was seeking to be obedient, but his world was falling apart. Things were not just not going well for him at all. Everything was going wrong, and it appeared that his destruction was imminent. So again, just, just feel the, the pressure, feel the circumstances on Saul right now. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So here's Saul's predicament. The enemy's been roused and is pressing on Saul. The army that he had raised is now deserting him. And Samuel has still not arrived to offer sacrifices and gain God's favor. Saul was under great pressure. Now friends, let's be honest. What would you do? How would you respond under the same circumstances? Well, I would follow the Lord who gave me the command that, that I should do. Guess what? You probably would be just like Saul. In fact, you might even give up a lot sooner than Saul did. Would you just stand around and wait while the enemy closes in? Would you begin to rationalize and to think that God wants you to be decisive and take charge? I mean, you know, isn't that what you're supposed to do is to apply God's truth to a context or to take responsibility because you're God's child? So taking action would be better than doing nothing God wants people who are doers and not hearers of the word only, okay? Doesn't it all just make practical sense that Saul took things into his own hands? Isn't this what much of Christian culture would say is the right and prudent thing to do under the circumstances? Wouldn't God want his children to use their brains and to make some necessary wise adjustments rather than simply wait and suffer from the enemy's attacks? I think it's really easy for us to sympathize with Saul here because this is so often how we are tempted to think. This is exactly how we in our secularized Christian culture begin to process things. We think that God's requirements are a little unreasonable at times, especially when we're facing trials. So we understand why Saul, under the pressure that he was under, would abandon waiting for Samuel to come on that seventh day and would rationalize taking things into his own hands because that is the kind of thing that we would likely do. And it's probably because you don't realize how much of the world we bring into our Christianity and how much of the thinking of, of I want to say, the business world or the practical world we bring into our Christian culture. But remember, God tells us that our Christian walk will be full of trials and tests where we will have opportunity to show our faith and obedience in God and his word. But we too fail. We abandon God's word 
for the immediate pressures we feel. And we too justify our actions of taking matters into our own hands. And somehow we spin it and frame it in such a way that if we were to say it to someone else, they would say, oh yeah, that's clearly what God desires. Hey, Saul, isn't he the king after all? Shouldn't he be decisive? Isn't he a leader? Caring for his his people and his army? Verse nine, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offerings. Why? Because that was the next thing that needed to be done, and Samuel's not around. And look at all this stuff that's happening here. So that's, that's what Samuel did. Now let's focus a little bit on what, sorry, that's what Saul did. Now let's focus on what Saul said. Now if the Irish were around during this time, they would have understood the next events as being what we call Murphy's Law. As soon as, just read it, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, right? The Irish were around. That's just a little tidbit of information for you, for your Bible knowledge, all right? They're here, all right? They're not really. But you can imagine the relief that Saul felt when he saw Samuel. That's probably not what you expected to come out of my mouth right then. But can you imagine, here's Saul wrestling with this situation, waiting and waiting and waiting, and Samuel's not coming, and so he goes ahead and he offers the the burnt offerings, and then, boom, as soon as he's done, there's Samuel coming, and by virtue of his response here, he's like, oh, you're finally here. But now he is here, he will tell me what to do next, he's thinking. But what comes out of Samuel's mouth is not exactly what he was expecting. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Now when you read those words, what have you done, probably your mind floats back to the voice of the Lord speaking to Adam and Eve in the garden, or the voice of the Lord speaking to Cain after he murdered his brother Abel, or to the voice of the Lord through Joshua to Achan when he had found God's, uh, or brought God's wrath on Israel when he stole the forbidden items. This is no small question. What have you done? And in the same way, that Adam sought to cover himself with a fig leaf. Now Saul speaks in a way that seeks to cover his disobedience. Notice what it says, and Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down at me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. Samuel is quite, saying basically, Samuel, this is quite obvious what I have done. My army is disappearing, the enemy is pressuring on me, and you didn't come 
what was I supposed to do? Now, we, we, could, we could restate that in a way that just paints Saul in a, in a worse light, saying he's just throwing accusations out there, and he may be doing some of that. But do we understand the kind of pressure he's under? Do we relate to that? And do we understand that, you know, you've got, he's trying to be decisive, and, and Samuel's not here, and I've got this nation to worry about, and what's going to happen? And so in that moment, he rationalizes, and he, he goes ahead and he offers those offerings. It's almost like he's saying, Samuel, I did what I had to do under the circumstances. Why do you have a problem with that? If you're a parent, you've never heard that from your teenagers at all. Doesn't Saul have a point here? Isn't it reasonable for a king of Israel to be decisive when things are in such disarray? Isn't it reasonable for Saul to consider this situation quite an impossible one, one that needs action? But friends, this is not the only time in the record of God's word before Saul that we have impossible situations where obedience is realized. Think about Abraham. Remember, Abraham was promised by God that he would have a son in his old age. How incredible that would be. And finally, God gives him a son, and his son, his name is what? Isaac. And then he has the son, and then what does God say? Hey, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, and I want you to go up to a mountain, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Huh? Okay, he gathers the wood and gathers the servant. And they go to the mountain and they leave the servant. And they has Isaac carry the wood and they go up to the mountain and he puts it and builds the altar and lays his son after he binds him, lays him down there and he's gonna be faithful to God and he's bringing down the knife and then an angel speaks and says, don't, don't sacrifice your son. I have a ram here over here. You're gonna sacrifice him. The point was this was a test to see, Abraham, are you going to be obedient to the voice of the Lord, to the word of God, and under impossible circumstances. I mean, unthinkable circumstances. Abraham was willing to be obedient, even with that promised son being that sacrifice. How in the world was God gonna work through this? I don't know, but I have to be obedient to God. What about Moses and the children of Israel? And they, they gathered together at the Red Sea and with all the joy of leaving e Egypt, now they're stuck with the sea in front of them and then the army that has been raised with their departure is now bearing down on them. What is going to happen? This situation is so incredibly impossible. There's no way that God could work this out. And yet, as Moses looks to God, and he says, put your staff in the water. Yeah, right, yeah, what's that gonna do? And all of a sudden, the water parts, and the people go through. The point here is, this is these are impossible circumstances with just as much pressure as Saul was facing that day. And yet, they demonstrated obedience and faith in the God of Israel. So even in this seemingly impossible situation, God is still requiring obedience. But now listen to what Samuel ultimately, or what, what he ultimately says to Saul here, what Saul found out now. Saul, 
you have been disobedient and you've acted foolishly. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. Saul, if you were to be obedient, you are on track to having a lasting legacy in Israel. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Just let that expression settle in. Saul, if you had been obedient, your, your line, your descendants would be sitting on the throne of Israel. But because of your disobedience, this is what is going to happen to you. This is the consequence. So all is lost now for you, Saul, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. There's only one kind of king that can rule God's people, and that is a king who is obedient to God. A king who will fear the Lord and serve him faithfully all, with all his heart, just like Samuel had said, serve the Lord with all your heart. So Saul, your disobedience has consequences. Here's what they are. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now friends, that is a consequence that has Huge implications, in particular for Saul. Now God here mentions, through Samuel, this man after God's own heart. Now what exactly does that mean? It's become part of our Christian vocabulary, so to speak, but, but what does it truly mean? How, how should we understand this expression? Because it certainly will be an expression for King David, right? And we typically think that it means that the individual has a bent in his heart toward doing what God wants him to do. But this is literally how the Hebrew reads. The Lord has sought for himself a man according to his own heart. So, this is really about the place this man has in God's heart rather than about the place God had in the man's heart. So we're talking about a man after God's own heart. We're talking about God's heart choosing the man, which is hugely different than how our Christian culture now uses the expression. Don't you want to be a, God after, a man after God's own heart? Oh yeah, I want to be that. Well, there are elements of truth there, but the point here is this, that God has been choosing a man who by his virtual, his very character will be one who is pursuing the things of God, desiring to do the things of God. So this means that God desired a king of his own choosing. Now the people had ultimately chosen a king like the nations and had acted like a king of the nations, disregarding the voice of the Lord, taking matters into his own hands but God now desires a king of his own choosing whose heart would express his devotion to the Lord through his faith and obedience. Now, it would be good for us to ask the begging question. 
what ultimately then is Saul's sin? Here's the sin. He assumed the role of a priest without having priestly authority. Only a properly ordained priest could legitimately offer burnt offerings properly before God. In other words, you have to have the office in order for those sacrifices to be received and accepted by God. Offering sacrifices to God was an important part of Israel's worship. They were holy and sacred forms of worship not to be taken lightly or tampered with. So they were not to be violated even in the face of an enemy with a deserting army, even when the circumstances were dire. And hear this, it is more important that God was worshiped properly than for Israel to survive this war. Now translate that into your circumstances. You find out that you have some kind of a terminal illness. You find out that your, your financial portfolio is, is starting to dwindle away. You find out that you are now under persecution and suffering. Hear this. God is more concerned that he is rightly worshipped than that disease being healed, those finances being recovered, or those, the suffering that you're going to experience at the hands of those who are oppressing you are, is relieved. God is far more concerned with right worship than he is about, I might want to say, the struggles that we face. And what he calls for us is in the context of those circumstances that the first thing that we do as his children is to say, I am going to worship God. And I'm going to worship him rightly. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to seek to obey him fully from the heart, regardless of what other people think, regardless of the implications of that obedience. And even if it means my ultimate demise, is your demise more important than God's glory? You could go into a lot of churches today that would say, yes. But does not God work through his people's suffering to bring about his glory? Does he not work through our demise to show that he is a God that is either worthy to be trusted or can provide the means to endure that suffering and even death? in such a way that would glorify him, knowing that it is through him and for him that we live. See, our obedience and our worship of him is far more important than our circumstances. Saul had acted foolishly for a number of reasons, and we should pay attention to some lessons that we can learn from them. Let's just think about four lessons just briefly here that I think flow out of this text. First one is this, obey the word of, the, of, of God. Like Saul, we must be careful that we don't violate the word of the Lord. It is God's gift of wise counsel, wise instruction, 
and clear commands. I'm going to read Psalm, 19, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward God has given us his word not just as some kind of oh let me see what he has for me today oh I'm isn't that nice isn't that good how that kind of connects with this and if you look over here it connects with that isn't that nice that's really cool no God has given us his word for a number of different reasons and one of those reasons is to clearly proclaim to us what he desires of us Now, not in some kind of a harsh way, you must do this, but listen, out of my love for you and knowing what is best for you and knowing also what is best for the unfolding of my kingdom, here is what I am commanding you to do. Now, obey me. And as you obey me, trust me. Listen to my word. Obey my word. Look at how wonderful and satisfying my word is to my people. So we must learn to obey the word of God, determined to obey the word of God. Secondly, disobeying the, word, disobeying the word of God is the same thing as disobeying God. You want, want to be careful that we don't say, okay, well, I just disobeyed the word of God, but I'm honoring God. No, if you're disobeying the word of God, you're disobeying God. Now wait a second here, Pastor Rod. You know, the, the, the word of God is not like, the, you know, some people accuse today, you're saying it's almost like it's the fourth person of the Trinity, which logically doesn't make any sense. But anyway, um, but in other words, you're saying, well, this is like, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then the word of God, like there's a fourth, okay. That's, that's kind of a really, it's an empty argument because if we understand what God's word is, We realize God breathed it out and therefore our ability to know God comes through what? The word of God. And therefore when God breathes it out, it is his word. Therefore when I listen to what his word says, it is God speaking to me. Now in our culture today, in particular in our Christian culture, there sometimes is a drift away from God's word and say we don't want to be so consumed with God's word. We want to be concerned with with Jesus. And so we almost kind of like put down God's word. What's more important is that you grow in your walk with Jesus. And I would, I would, I'm here to say, I want you to grow in your walk with Jesus. You hear me? Is that right? But you're not going to grow in your walk with Jesus unless you are walking with Jesus through his word. Because through his word is how you get to Jesus and how you understand Jesus. So it's important then for us to recognize that to disobey the word is the same thing as disobeying God. Now just let that sink in a little bit. Number three, God's work is to be done God's way, not man's way. Just like Saul, we must observe that to seek to do God's work, we must seek to do it God's way. God had given through Samuel, 
Saul instructions about his work. And he was to do the work that he had been given God's way. Okay? God has given us his word for a number of reasons. One of them is to reveal to us what we must do as we walk with him. In today's secular context, where God is being removed from our society in so many ways, and ultimately by, by hateful people, people who hate God, the pressure is on Christians to pursue building his church, but in his way. Simply using church growth strategies, marketing strategies to get a crowd is not what God calls the church to do. Making our Sunday morning gatherings lighter and less threatening is not what God has called us to do. And friends, if you know anything about our church, we're saying the most important thing is when we come together as a church is to say the gospel of Jesus Christ is everything. And then also to say, after that, it is the word of God that gives us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we cannot understand that gospel except we're spending time in the word. And so we're gonna, we're gonna emphasize and we're gonna, we're gonna motivate that we're gonna study, we're gonna learn, we're gonna grow in not just our knowledge of the word for head knowledge, but our knowledge for the word so that it can be practical, life-giving knowledge for living. And I'm gonna be unsatisfying as a pastor if I just give you some ideas. What you don't need is my ideas. What you need is the word of God preached and explained and expounded and pressed home, not just in the context of Sunday morning, but in the small groups and in the home groups. And, And as you do your own Bible reading, that it's the word of God that is filling your heart. Friends, it's so important that we, having done that, realize that God then gives his word to gives us instructions about how we are to do church and how we are to live life. God's work is to be done God's way, not man's way. And finally, sin is never a small matter. And I put in my notes, no matter how small sin is. Sin is never a small matter, no matter how small sin is. Finally, like Saul, we might conclude that our particular sin is a small matter, but it's not a small matter to God. Saul didn't really trust in the Lord with all his heart, did he? Saul didn't really stop leaning on his own understanding, did he? Saul didn't really acknowledge fully the Lord at work. And so his road and his path was not one of joy and blessing, but it was a path of despair. I say it this way, incomplete obedience is not obedience. Incomplete obedience is not obedience. But that is, friends, often where we find ourselves. Now, what is the fruit from Saul's foolishness? What is the result of it? We're not gonna spend a lot of time in this section because this is just kind of given to us. It's like it's just like one thing after the other, just to just to show us the impact of where foolishness takes us. It's a very gloomy picture of of Israel's circumstances at this time. Look, Israel, you have your king. (laughs) Is he really what you were looking for? First of all, there's what I'm calling 
a separation, a separation. Saul is alone without God's prophet. Notice what happens in verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. In other words, Samuel went this direction, and Saul now went off this direction. Has there been any repentance? There's a silence there. Samuel gave the consequences. Samuel goes off. Now here's the thing. What good is the king of Israel unless he has an ear to the voice of God? He's alone. He has been separated from his God and from the man of God. In a time of crisis, friends, or even in normal living, that is not where we want to find ourselves. Secondly, depletion. Saul is depleted without his army. It says, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men, which means that 2,400 men had abandoned him. And that was, those are the official army. They're gone. He's left with 600 men. His numbers have been depleted. <laughs> and how many Philistines were there? 36,000, that was just the numbers that were given. Then there's the whole sand on the seashore thing, right? And then, notice the third thing, and that is oppression. Saul is powerless under the efforts of the enemy. It says in verse 16, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward uh, Ophrah, the land of Shaul, another company turned toward Beth uh, Horon, and another company toward the border that looks down on the valley of uh, Zebom uh, toward the wilderness. And the, the point here is this, that, that where Saul was encamped at Michmash is now territory of the Philistines, and he's holding up now in Gibeah, and the Philistines are just, they're just running rampant all over the place. They are totally powerless. It's mighty Israel with a mighty king like the other nations is powerless. Here's the last one. And you kind of probably wonder, why is this even in the text? <clears throat> I'm calling it humiliation. Saul is humiliated along with the people without any weapons. He said, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. And so not only did they take the blacksmith out of their territory, but if they needed any tools to be sharpened, you had to go to the Philistines and have them sharpened. And it was really expensive if you wanted to sharpen anything that was considered likely to be a weapon. And so the, these verses describe for us <clears throat> people who are not simply under oppression, but people who are denied any mechanism for maintaining their own economy. These oppressors control the blacksmiths, and in so doing have Israel firmly in their grip. The people of Israel are deprived of any means of resistance. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash, which is preparation for chapter 14, <clears throat> but we, we kind of need to conclude here, though, 
that what we have here is not simply a, a nation that is, that is humiliated, but this is a nation now that really is acting as if they are slaves once again. I mean, you talk about low points in Israel's history. The end of Joshua, you know, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, there was no king in Israel. That was a, a low point from the perspective of their relationship with God. But from the perspective of being oppressed, this was a low point again in Israel's history. So we find it hard to believe um, what's going on here because we, we, we sympathize so much with Saul, because we find it really, really hard to be, be fully obedient or to be fully trusting in God. We often feel the practical sense um, that it's really beyond us to obey God in the way that he wants us to obey him, and so we, we relate even to the struggles that Saul has in this story. Now friends, the story's not over, but it's a story of obedience required, um, obedience attempted but failed, and the consequences that come as a result of that, which are pretty drastic. But for us this morning, as we bring things to a close, there's, there's a, a need for us to, to push ahead, to push ahead to say, yes, David is coming, the one whom God has chosen, the one who would be um, the, the man after God's own heart, but we wanna push through David and to Jesus Christ, as we think now, first of all, uh, about two different, I would say, concluding thoughts. Number one is this, that Christ is the obedient king. Saul, and like so many other kings after him, would be the disobedient king. Christ is the obedient king. And like Saul, Jesus faced great trial and temptation, but each time that Satan came at him, with an offer of temptation, he responded by quoting scripture. And it isn't that scripture was some kind of a a magical weapon against Satan, but the scriptures that Jesus quoted pointed out the truth and revealed Satan's deception. So when Jesus is tempted, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He says, it it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. These are all statements of truth from God's word to counteract the deception and the lie and the test of Satan in his context. And here's how the writer of Hebrews reflects on Christ, and I'm reading from Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, so listen. In the days of his flesh, that means when Jesus was incarnated on this earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, this this, this word, obey, obey. Jesus obeyed the Father and Jesus in obeying the Father was also the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so in Christ's obedience, Jesus came to the earth, went to Jerusalem, endured the scorn of the religious leaders, suffered under the hands of the Roman soldiers, was crucified, was mocked and scorned as people looked on and he died 
as the ultimate sacrifice. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 2 and verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, all of this was, was love born through obedience. Jesus is our obedient king. And here's where we need to land the plane for us. We and Saul are the disobedient fools. Who in this room can say that you have not ever given in to the pressure to take matters into your own hands and in so doing have been disobedient? See, we all struggle with this tension of this is what God says and this is what he wants but look at my circumstances and and here's how I can handle it if I just took it in my own hands or I can do things God's way. We've all been there. We will all be there. We will continue to be there. So the challenge for us then is to live out what Hebrews 4.16 says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace when? in that time of need. So that means that in those times of difficulty and struggle when we're we're uncertain exactly what we're supposed to do and we find out this is what God says, then I find grace and mercy to do what God is asking me to do. The point here is this, that as we face trials and difficulties and circumstances that seem impossible, we are to depend on Christ and ask him to be the source of our help and to be the source of our strength because we know he is that perfect, obedient king and we are the imperfect, humble servants who follow that king. Now friends, this past week, um, I, I listened to a podcast by Todd Friel, it's called Wretched Radio, it comes out every, every weekday and this past week, um, one of the, the podcasts was him interviewing uh, a man who I respect a lot, who's a, a Christian apologist by the name of uh, Dr. James White. You may have heard of him before, Alpha and Omega Ministries. He debates all sorts of different people and is really, really helpful um, in, in the things that he says and his observations. And, and he was asking the question uh, of Dr. White, and here's the question, what do you see as the future of Christianity in the USA? Now I'm just reflecting back on what he said. I didn't write it down as he said it, but these are, these are kind of the things that he was talking about. It says, in the future of our country, we will, we will be considered as people whose beliefs constitute hate speech due to our literal understanding of God's word, um, in particular in, in areas of things like homosexuality, um, calling it sin because that's what God's word says. So we will be now labeled as the people who are haters in our culture, and that will become the standard. That will be the cultural acceptable thing to say about those who are Christians. Secondly, we will not only lose our tax exempt status, but he believes that we will be taxed more because of our hateful beliefs. In other words, it's, our beliefs are gonna penalize us, not only corporately, but even as individuals. Now you might be saying, well that could never happen in America. There's a lot of things that are happening right now that you would say that could never happen in America and how fast it's happening. He said nominal Christianity will continue to decline 
And true, uh, a true picture of the church will emerge, one that is without the fluffy nonsense that so much of American Christianity is plagued with. I think he's true, I think he's right. Nominal Christianity means people just kind of, oh, I'm gonna plug myself to a church, I'm gonna attach myself, oh, isn't that nice? And it's not truly robust Christianity. What we're trying to promote here, what we're trying to show and demonstrate here is that the word of God and, and God working through the church is, is to be done in, in a way that is strong and firm and standing on his truth. But nominal Christianity will just begin to fizzle away and before the church in America will look outside its borders to learn how to face suffering for faith and dealing with oppression. Whereas we have been the leaders in so many areas of the church, one of the areas that we have not experienced is the arena of suffering and struggle because of our beliefs. And we will have to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world who have had to learn how to endure and the last thing it says is this, many will stop attending church because of the social, financial, and political implications. In other words, socially, if you actually go to that church, it's like, there go the haters. Politically, you're part of that group that's that extreme, wacko, Christian, actually believes the Bible is to be literally understood. Can you believe that? What a bunch of losers. What a, what a bunch of simpletons. Financially, because if you contribute to that organization, you will be um, aligned then with its ideologies, and you would not want to identify yourself with an ideology that is considered to be hate speech. Now, I don't know if these things will all pan out, but it was interesting listening to that list because friends, we may find ourselves in situations in the not so distant future where we'll be at a cross point where we'll say, I'm either going to be obedient to God, no matter the implications, or I'm gonna find some way to kind of weasel out from under that obedience and rationalize it in such a way that I can pull a scripture out here and, and formulate something so I actually don't have to be under what God says, but I can still be accepted in the world. It's a choice to be obedient or to be disobedient. And we're facing it more and more and more. And friends, that choice is going to be a choice that all of us are gonna have to make and it's gonna be difficult. It's difficult now, it's gonna get worse. What will you do? What will you lean on? How will your views of the word of God change because of the pressure that you're under? How will your stand for God's truth be affected by all the pressure that is there? Friends, will we be obedient or disobedient? And we need to encourage one another to listen to God, to value his truth, and to stand firm with him no matter what. Lord, help us. This is a daunting reality. Lord, the, the Philistines are rampant in our context. And there are many who have named the name of Christ who are slowly slipping away, moving away, 
trying to separate themselves from a, a literal biblical Christianity because culture doesn't like it. Culture is offended by it. And our very beliefs are seen as, as horrible offenses to the culture in which we live. And it's so easy to rationalize, Lord, and help us. We desperately need your help. And so, Lord, to counter that, may we, may we not just throw our hands in the air and panic, but, Lord, may we seek to know God's word carefully and clearly so that we can actually articulate what the word of God says and why we believe what we believe, not simply something pulled out of the air or pulled out of reason, but it's based on a standard. And so, Lord, would you, would you bless our efforts to help our people to to know how to approach God's word and how to, how to glean truth out of the text of God's word. Lord, may we not settle for proof texting or just people bouncing around ideas and, and throwing a verse at it. Lord, may we truly understand how to read your word and study your word, Lord, so that we can speak your word and do it, Lord, with clarity and with passion and with authority and love and concern. May we not just huddle together and, 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 and hug each other while the world calls us hateful, but Lord, may we be bold to say, no, we're actually being loving, and here's why, and let me show you why. And may we endure suffering, Lord, because it's part of the plan that you have. We've just been so blessed in this country not to have to endure much of it. Lord, would you help us to be faithful that, that the pulpit of Gateway Bible Church would not soften, that it would be bold with the truth and continue to be bold in a way that would be clear, would press home the need to humble ourselves before you. And Lord, would you be glorified in all of that, we ask in your precious holy name, amen.